good morning. I'm Pastor Jonathan, and uh, one of the pastors on staff here at Grace Church. Well, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at Paul's prayer that we should know the depth and the width and the length and the height of God's love. We learned that the good news of Jesus is more than just a diving board. We've got to jump in and, as Dan would say, experience the 86-degree water. <laughs> Learning to, to splash around in the immensity of God's love. You know, knowing the facts of the gospel is one thing. Having the truth of the gospel captivate us is really quite another. The gospel message is more than, than a one-way ticket to heaven. It motivates and catalyzes the way we relate to God and, and ourselves and others. It produces a, a type of people who are consumed with a passion, with the passion of God and a comprehensive love for others. The more we begin to understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him, uh, to a holy God, the more we begin to realize the depth of God's love and grace. The pool is wider than just swimming, than, than my swimming lane. In fact, God's love explodes the lanes and calls for an all swim. And the length, well, there's really no length to God's love. It's eternal. And so I have assurance that nothing can make God love me more or any less than he already does. What about the height of God's love? How do we start to comprehend and, and experience the height of his love? I was recently looking through some of our albums of our kids when they were little and and uh, I was reminded how often we had to rescue my youngest, Micah, from water. <laughs> he had no fear of water at his age. I, I think he'd grown accustomed to mom and dad always being there. And so while, you know, he might have panicked when he fell in or surprised, uh, he knew someone would be there to rescue him. And one of the pictures that reminded me this is of Jennifer. She was fully clothed, jeans, t-shirt, sitting in a hot tub with Micah. <laughs> he had slipped and fell in, and she had to go in after him. And, well, you might as well stay in if you're already soaked. <laughs> but there's another time that, that we'll never forget as a family. <clears throat> we had just arrived at our rental at the beach, and it just so happened to have a pool, and the kids were excited, and and they're like, hey, you know, can we check out the pool? I'm like, yeah, check it out. Just don't leave the gate open for the younger ones. Well, we were unpacking and, and moving into our house for the week, and, and all of a sudden we heard a splash. <laughs> so we all went running, and my, my brother-in-law, Tom, was the first one there. Micah had slipped. He had fallen into the deep end. And all I remember is his little head going under and then trying to come back up and going under. And he's, he's trying to claw for the edge. And, and my, my, my brother-in-law was the first to get there, so he dove in, phone, wallet, everything. <laughs> but I'll never forget the, the relief that I felt as a parent as I, as I kneeled by the edge of the pool. And my brother-in-law lifted Micah into my arms and into my embrace. That would become a, a regular routine for me as a parent, just lifting my kids out of the water, wrapping them with a warm towel that had been spread out in the sun. 
and them sitting in the warmth and security and comfort of dad's lap. You see, when Micah fell into the pool, we, we could have gathered around and said, tough luck, kid. We told you not to get in. <laughs> you got into this mess, you get yourself out. <laughs> well, no way. He was helpless. He was unable to save himself. He, he needed rescued. He needed his dad. And as I think about the gospel and the good news of Jesus and his love for me, I think of this picture, Jesus being raised up on a cross for me and then raised to life again so that I could be raised into his arms, rescued and wrapped in the security and immensity of his incomparable love. See, the height of his love for me is the contrast between the depth of my desperate need and the level to which he's raised me up to himself and wraps me in his arms as his child, that is the height of the Father's love for us. And when we begin to realize the dimensions of God's love and, and the new life and new position and new confidence we have in Jesus, we live life differently. We see things from a, a different perspective, a different viewpoint. And in fact, there's a bounce in our step that comes from seeing ourselves in a different light through God's eyes. This is what the Apostle Paul meant when he prayed this prayer that we've been looking at in Ephesians chapter 3. And so we're going to spend a lot of our time there this morning. So if you have your Bible, grab it, device, uh, or you can look up on the screen. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3. Looking again at this, this prayer for us. Verse 14, for this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I believe this prayer challenges us to think about the gospel differently. The gospel is not just about what Jesus did for us in the past, it's not just about heaven and living with God in and, and some future uh, forever. No, it's the gospel. The gospel is also for life and living right now. It, the story of Jesus, the gospel, is the driving force behind every single moment of our lives. And so I remember when I was in high school, the big thing was to take your vinyl record. Do you remember those? <laughs> We've come a long way. But you would take your vinyl record and you would stop the record player and you would spin it backwards. <laughs> and it was called backmasking. And sometimes bands would leave messages for their listeners that you could only hear if you played the record backwards. <laughs> well, that's what I want to do today. <laughs> I, want to, I want to play Paul's message backwards from verse 14, in which he says, for this reason. 
You see, because whenever we read the Bible and we, we come across words and phrases like this, it should cause us to stop and ask a question. So if I read therefore, I need to ask, theref- what's the therefore therefore? <laughs> if, if Paul says for this reason, and then I, I stop and pause and say, well, for what reason? You see, there's a reason he's praying this prayer for the church. I believe he's talking about everything he's just written in chapter 3, but I also think he's referring back to everything he's written so far. And so we're going to work our way back to find out the reason Paul writes what he does. But before we do that, I think we need to remember that the Apostle Paul isn't just writing as some professor of abstract theology. He's writing from personal experience, from personal wonder. You see, the Apostle Paul started out as a religious fanatic. He was walking around the edge of the pool in his own self-righteousness, pointing out his own superior way of life and judging everyone else for their lack of religious commitment. So much so because he thought he was defending God's honor and his own self-righteous way of life, he was part of the persecution of the early church. In fact, the Bible tells us and we read that he held the coats of those who picked up stones to crush the body of the first martyr of the church. But then something happened. But then Paul met Jesus on the road one day. And that's when everything changed. That's when he came face-to-face with Jesus. That's when he came face-to-face with the gospel and God's love. And it radically transformed his life, his purpose, his passion, the course of his life. And now as Paul writes this, he's, he's kind of splashing around in the deep end of God's love and grace like a giddy child on the first day of summer vacation. And so we look backwards into chapter 3, and the first thing we see is that God's love is a scandalous marvel. I love to use that word to describe God's love because something scandalous is is something shocking and outrageous. It, It doesn't make sense. And isn't that God's love? It's a love that simply doesn't make sense. It's it's not proper that anyone should love, would love like our God, our creator, our father has loved us. It's scandalous. And I think we see a glimpse of this in chapter 3, verse 8. Though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures, the the unsearchable riches available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. Now get this, this is amazing. To all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, this was his eternal plan which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Basically, Paul is saying God's love is so wide, the lanes have been renewed, God has announced an all swim. The gospel has been made available to all people, Jew and Gentile, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor, and it's resulted in this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-national, multi-cultural grouping of people together united in Christ 
called the church. And all of this points to God's multifaceted wisdom. In fact, it's so amazing. It says the angels, the unseen rulers and authorities in this heavenly realms, that they watch in marvelous and curious wonder. You see, in the classroom of God's universe, he's the teacher, the angels are the students, and the church is the illustration of God's scandalous love and wisdom. Another place in the Bible describes it this way, even the angels long to look into these things. These things, what are these things that consume the attention of God's angels? And as we look at the context, we realize it's talking about the wonder and the mystery of the gospel, God's story. You know, it's interesting, there's some interesting words here in that it talks about that the angels are, are basically, they're on their tiptoes, sort of like looking over the crowds to see the parade. They're on their tiptoes, and then there's another word that says that they stoop down. And so from the edge of heaven, they're, 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 they're straining, they're looking, they're curious in wonder at the, at the, at, at the marvel, marveling at the unfolding plan of our great rescue. They long to look and understand what God has done for us through Jesus. Get this, I mean, we alone, of all the creatures in the universe, experience the wonders of God's saving grace. This fascinates the angels and, and causes them to study and marvel at the mysteries of our salvation. God loves you so much. There's such a radical change. The angels are amazed. And so what the angels wonder at but never experience, we have the opportunity to understand and, and experience every single day. Salvation is a story of the greatest rescue mission in the history of the universe about God sending his son to rescue a rebel race at the cost of his own son, offering forgiveness and freedom to all who believe in him. It's about God's plan to establish the church around the world as a means of bringing light into the darkness. And the grand drama of salvation will come to its appointed end when Jesus returns and we will be with him forever in his perfect creation. And we get to be a part of all that. This eternally fascinating message craved to be understood by angels can change a heart, a community, and the world. And so Paul says, for, for this reason, for what reason? God's love is such a scandalous marvel that even the angels crave the fascinating message. Well, going backward more, <clears throat> some more in Ephesians 2, then, we, we also see that God's love is elevating. I think we've all sat in interesting places at interesting times in our lives, I I believe probably some here have sat with community leaders, judges, maybe even presidents. And as I think about people I've sat with, I'm reminded of, of, of the tribal chief I sat with in Africa. I'm reminded of the producer of the reality TV show I sat by on a plane. A geneticist, a, a doctor of astrophysics, an entertainer, and thousands of Ohio State and, and Indians fans. I mean, I've, I've sat in some interesting places with some interesting people, sometimes at interesting heights. 
But nothing, absolutely nothing compares to where the Bible says I'm seated right now. Ephesians 2, chapter, or chapter 1, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I'm so glad it doesn't end there. But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And get this, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul takes us from the, the amazing depths, uh, uh, the despairing depths of our depravity to the amazing heights of God's amazing grace. He shows us the stark contrast from death to life, to, from hell to heaven, from slavery to freedom, from wrath to mercy. Paul wants to make sure we understand that the salvation to which we've been called makes a radical difference in our lives. It's not just a change of name, a change of status, a change of life. It's a change of the way we look at life and live life. It's a change in our position. Our seat has been upgraded. See, God gave his son for us so that we might be raised to life, resurrected from our spiritual death, <clears throat> deadness. Out of death, he's given life. An object of God's wrath, his enemy, my life then has been turned upside down and I'm now his child, a friend of God. And see, just as Jesus didn't stay buried in the tomb, just as he was raised to life and, and put back in the business, so are we. And so that means the follower of Jesus is able to do what he could never have done on his own without Christ. He's able to love the unlovable. He's able to endure the unendurable, forgive the unforgivable. And Christ alone, raised with him, raised to new life, and now seated with him. See, we've been elevated with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms. Notice it's past tense. It's, it's already happened. We're not there yet physically, but we're there through our relationship, our union with Christ. We're seated with Jesus. Well, what does that mean? Well, when I was a, a kid, I remember a song that used, to, that used to say, I left my heart in San Francisco. In other words, San Francisco still holds the singer's affections. It's, it's where he wants to be. It's always pulling him back. In fact, he might physically be in Pittsburgh, but it's not where he wants to be. He wants to be in San Francisco, and Pittsburgh is a, a foreign place. He's not interested in being a Steelers fan. <laughs> but that's how those who have said yes to Jesus, God took our heart, our passion, our desires, our purpose, our lives, and put them in heaven with Jesus. So that heaven now holds my affection. 
It's heaven that's, that's pulling me upward, seated with Jesus, where is where I want to be. And, and we may look like we're in the world, but the world has no claim on us. It's a, it's a foreign land, and we're exiles and strangers and aliens. Our place and position is with Jesus. To be seated in the heavenly places with Jesus is to be in God's domain. Seated with Christ, we have his authority. We outrank the evil one. We have authority over the dominion of darkness because we are intimately identified with Jesus. See, when I'm seated with Jesus and Satan comes to accuse me, to remind me of, of things in my past, here's what we need to remember. When Satan looks at us, he sees the bottom of our feet because we're seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms. Greater is he that is within me. Greater is he that I'm seated with than he that is in the world. That's a powerful thing to understand. You know, like, like pulling Micah from the pool, God raised us up and folded us with his love and grace and seated us with him. But why, why has he done all that? Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Have you ever seen a turtle sitting on top of a fence post? It's kind of a strange sight. I mean, if you ever do, know that the turtle didn't get there on its own, right? In some way, in the same way, as followers of Jesus, we don't get where we are today by our own effort. It's not in us or even possible for us to climb the fence post. It's impossible to climb into the seat next to Jesus without taking God's hand and being raised up with him. You see, God found us in a helpless situation and raised us up to unbelievable heights in Christ. We are the beneficiaries of the incomparable riches of his grace. You see, God found us in, in this situation and, and gave us salvation. We didn't earn it, couldn't buy it, can't work for it. God gave it, and because of it, we've been elevated to new heights for this reason. For what reason? God's love is such a scandalous marvel that even the angels crave the fascinating message. For what reason? God's love elevates us so that even you and I are seated with him in the heavenly realms. And as we continue to go backwards, we continue to realize all that we have in Christ, chapter 1, God's love is generous. When our other son was, was younger, he also, I remember, he came up to us one day and asked, uh, hey, mom and dad, are, are we rich? <laughs> and I didn't say this, but I remember my first thought was, well, we just had hot dogs and tater tots for dinner. What do you think? <laughs> Am I rich? Or are we rich? You know, compared to a lot of others, we would say, no, not really. But compared to the rest of the world, just the fact that we have an indoor kitchen makes us wealthier than two-thirds of the world. 
I have more stuff in one drawer of my desk than many of this world will ever own in a lifetime. But being rich is more than having lots of money and things. Most of the things in life that really matter can't be bought or sold. In fact, and, and the truth is, I've met some of the richest people in the world who had to walk a mile just to get drinking water. Because they have life in Jesus. They are some of the most joy-filled, spiritually rich people you'd ever meet. Did you know some of the richest people in Northeast Ohio are in this room this morning? In fact, some of the richest people in the world are right here. That's, Paul, that's what Paul wants us to grasp. When we realize and utilize the riches we have in Jesus, God does a transforming work in our hearts, raises us up with Christ, elevates our position, giving us something. The angels strain their necks in curiosity, the witness. Paul begins with these words, but actually I'm just going to read four verses of, of 12 verses that are a run-on sentence. In other words, what Paul starts in verse 3 with the phrase, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he continues without pause, without period, without stopping to take a breath until the end of verse 14. You see, Paul can't stop talking, he can't stop thinking about where, where he's come from and how God has raised him up and, and how he's so richly blessed. And so I, I picture him writing this down as he sits in prison, and as he gets, as he gets started, he can't stop. He's, just, he's gushing with excitement. The reminder and realization of everything God has done for him just overwhelms him. It's sort of like the time we, we took the, <clears throat> the kids to Chuck E. Cheese. They, they called it Chuck E. Jesus. <laughs> but the, the first time we took them to Chuck E. Jesus, they, they didn't know where to start. All the lights and the bells and the sounds and the whistles and the tickets and, and prizes and all these things. And, you know, in a, in a five-year-old's mind, it's just like, Whoa! They didn't know where to start. Hey, look at this. Look at that. Let's do this. Did you see that? <laughs> I think that's what Paul's doing here when he writes, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. You see, God chose us. God called us to be a part of his adopted family. Because we've been chosen to be a part of his family, nothing can change our destiny. Since we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, we can't do anything to lose it. We've been redeemed, rescued, liberated, set free. We've been forgiven. The Holy Spirit is proof of our new birth, our new identity. We've been marked as a prized possession of God, guaranteed an inheritance of all God's promises, wealth, and goodness. And verse 7 continues, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. We've received the riches of God's grace. 
I mean, look at this. I think it's fascinating because he could have saved us out of the riches of his grace. Instead, he rescued us according to the riches of his grace. And the difference is phenomenal. I mean, think about this. If one of the richest men in the world, Warren Buffett, came up to you and gave you a $20 bill, he'd be giving out of the abundance of his riches. You see, to someone who's a billionaire, $20 isn't much. However, imagine if he came up to you and handed you the deed to your own private island. On this private island, you have your own mansion, a a garage filled with cars, your own marina filled with boats, your own Swiss bank account. (laughs) Then I think we could say that he's giving according to his riches. I mean, think about that. That's the way that God has saved us, not merely out of his riches, but according to his riches, God has lavished us with his grace. And so Paul says, for this reason, for what reason? God's love is so generous that the only worthy response is a lifestyle of worship. You see, all of this because of the gospel. Jesus suffered the full wrath of God for my sin. He traded places with me, dying the death I was condemned to. He became my sin so that I could become his righteousness. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for me, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he took my record, he took my debt, he died for it, paid for it in full, and offers me his perfect record in exchange. I mean, think about that. Here's the amazing thing about this. If you've said yes to Jesus, if you are in Christ, when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your past failures and and mistakes and sinfulness and guilt. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. Our new identity in Christ radically changes everything. But here's the thing. Satan's most effective weapon against us is to convict us of our sin. He wants us to forget our identity, the the identity God the Father has declared over us in Christ. He wants us to base our sense of approval on how well we've done. You see, the fact that that Micah couldn't swim and he fell into the pool, even though we told, told the kids not to get into the pool, That disobedience didn't determine the way I thought about him. It didn't determine the the way I responded to him. No, he's my son, my child. But Satan would like us to think that God's approval is based on what I do and not who God says I am. You see, sometimes Satan attacks our identity by correctly pointing out our failures. He helps us to to see how badly we're doing by pointing out someone who's doing much better or seems to be doing much better. And other times he puffs us up with pride and, well, at least you, you don't struggle like he does. But either way, the strategy is often effective for us. It takes our eyes off of what God has said to us, what God has declared over us, the righteousness of Christ. 
I mean, understand this, both, the, both Satan and the Holy Spirit point out sin, but Satan starts with what you did, and then he tears you down from there. The Holy Spirit starts with what Christ has declared over you, and he helps you to rebuild. Satan beats us down. Jesus raises us up to our new identity. And while Satan casts doubt on who we are and tries to make us forget where we're seated each day, Jesus says to us, you are mine. You are my child. You belong to me. You're seated with me. Now live that way. Believe it. Live it. See, that's what happens when we get swept up in the story and the reality of the gospel in our lives. Someone has written, God, the gospel, <clears throat> gospel change is the spirit of God using the story of God to make the beauty of God come alive in our hearts. So these last few weeks I've been thinking about the height of God's love and just reminded of my own story. When I was a young boy, I remember kneeling at my bed, my parents either side of me, and just singing, Jesus loves me. (laughs) Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong, we are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, yes, Jesus loves me. And I remember just being overwhelmed by that truth, even even as a kid. After we sang, we we prayed, and I asked Jesus to come into my life. And I remember, again, just being overwhelmed with the truth of that. Overwhelmed with this, this sense of God's love lavished on me. But honestly, sometimes throughout my life, I've forgotten. I've forgotten the extent of his love for me. You know, weighed down with personal messes or or messes all around me or just becoming distracted by everything that I'm doing. I miss the point. I forget God's love. I've, I've forgotten the extent of his love, and it's easy to do. In fact, you might be here this morning, and it's been a while since the last time you've you've splashed around in the deep end of God's love and, and grace. Maybe you never have. I just want to, I want to encourage you this morning. Let God raise you up in his embrace. Remind you again of whose you are. Of who you are. Who you're seated with. Your identity and position and riches in Jesus. You see, Paul says, for this reason. For, for what reason? Because God's love for us is such a scandalous marvel that the angels are always looking to learn more about it. For this reason, because we've been raised to new life and elevated to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, because we have a new identity in Christ measured out in accordance with the abundance of God's grace. For this reason, Paul says, I kneel before the Father. See, our response to all of this is not to earn it. Our response to this is is gratitude, is worship. 
The last, uh, our response to all these incredible truths explained to us in these first three chapters is worship. And we give praise through our songs and and our words, our thoughts, our actions, our service, our our love and grace and kindness we show to others. Our lives, we worship with our lives. You see, it's it's not a Sunday morning, once a a week kind of worship. It's It's a lifestyle of being a worshiper. And a worshiper is someone who acknowledges God's love, the gospel, each moment of his life. You see, when we begin to grasp that truth, when we begin to grasp what God has done for us, is doing for us, and will do for us, we see life differently. We see, we, we live life differently, we, we work differently, we play differently. Everything becomes an opportunity to give God praise. You see, when I know who I am, I know what to do. My thoughts become consumed with God as a result of diving deep in his grace and being lifted up in my new identity and position with him. See, God becomes more than just number one thing on a list of a bunch of other things. He becomes the center of everything in my life. There's no part of my life that the gospel is not impacting and reaching in in some way. And so being swept up by the immensity of the gospel and the the good news of God's love for me, I I live, I'm compelled, I'm motivated to make Jesus make sense. And when I bump into people, the gospel spills out, it, it, it splashes out because my life is saturated with his love. I'm passionate about sharing my life with others, loving God and loving others and living on mission together. I I see myself as an essential part of God's plan and purpose. I commit to helping the next generation grab hold of their identity and their value in Jesus. Being immersed in the scandalous marvel of God's love, I I work with others to maximize the impact for God's kingdom. I run into messes and do hard things to bring hope where hope is failing. I work and think and create in ways that reflect his character. And I give because he's given to me in accordance to the super abundant riches of his grace. And so as you go from here this morning, if you've said yes to Jesus, remember the angels marvel of what God has done and is doing in your life. Wow. You are rich in the fullness of God. You have the best seat in the house, seated with Jesus. You've been raised up and wrapped in the splendor of God's riches and the warmth of his love. And so as we conclude this series, I want to encourage you. Keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Splashing in the deep end of the scandalous marvel we call the gospel. May our lives reflect what God has done for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Wow, thank you for your love. 
Thank you for your grace toward me. I didn't deserve it. But Father, I thank you that you made a way and you raised me up with you to be seated in the heavenly realms, to be seated with Jesus and given the riches of your promises. Father, thank you that you love me that way. You loved me that way. You love me that way. You will continue to love me that way. Father, forgive me for those times that I've gotten distracted and Lord, I've, I've failed to truly understand and experience your love because I've started to go my own way. Father, I pray that we might lean into you this morning and, and to grasp what the angels crave over us. To grasp that, that we've been seated, raised up, identified with Jesus. To grasp your immeasurable riches. We are chosen. We are loved. We've been sealed as God's possession. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, may our lives be motivated and compelled by your response and worship, Lord, to all these amazing things that you've done in our life. Father, thank you for loving us. I love you too. In Jesus' name.